Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to another edition of Let's Talk TV Live House Rewatch Edition. Every Tuesday night on Blog Talk Radio, I am your host, Barbara Barnett. I am the executive editor of Blog Critics Magazine, and I also serve there as the senior TV and film editor. I'm also publisher and editor-in-chief of Let's Talk TV, and I'm getting feedback on this. Hopefully that's not coming across. Um, I just want to quickly promote next week's episode, uh, my Monday night show, and the week after as well. Um, Next Monday night, we're going to be talking about Once Upon a Time, the episode The Queen is Dead, and then uh, we'll be previewing the following week's episode, The Miller's Daughter, which I've already seen and I've written a little bit about. And then the following week after that, it'll be on a special night, but my guest will be Jane Espenson, the wonderful TV writer, Jane Espenson, who's been on the show. This will be her third appearance on Let's Talk TV Live this year. So um, that's going to be really exciting. But I am also very excited right now to welcome to the show this evening Andrew Holtz, who is probably best known among House fans as the person who wrote uh, the Medical Science of House MD, which I read cover to cover when it first came out, long before I actually even thought of doing a blog about the show, much less a book. So I want to welcome Andrew to the show. Welcome. Thank you, Barbara. It's wonderful to be here. Hope the green room was comfortable and the, you know, the champagne was nice and chilled and the and all the other accoutrements. <laughs> I tried not to sip too much. Oh, good. You know, you have to sort of do that for this show because we're very informal here. And who knows, somebody in the chat room may call in to say hi and ask a question. So we want to be kind of chill for this for this show. Um, so tell us a little bit about – you've got a really interesting background. You have uh, – your undergraduate work was in communications, but you have a Master of Public Health degree, which is a really intriguing combination. So how did you how – did, how did that all come about? How did you get to writing – about well, that. it actually started out in physics. I was I was a <laughs> physics major, volunteering at our college radio station, and decided I was having a heck of a lot more fun at the radio station than I was in the physics lab. Uh, and then also realized that a bachelor's degree in physics <laughs> prepares you only for getting a uh, going on to get a doctorate in yes, physics. <laughs> so I, I didn't want to do that. I have to just jump in because this is really funny. My daughter uh, started out as a physics major, and then she took physics <laughs> at yes. university. She says, ah, she's about to get her Ph.D. in chemistry now, but you can't do much with a bachelor's in any kind of science at all except get a doctorate. So That's right. Medicine. I mean, it, But I still had a, I have a fascination with science, and I realized that being a journalist – would mean I could just flit from lab to lab and and have great conversations with scientists who were doing all the hard work. <laughs> so yes. I, it turned out to be a wonderful choice. Uh, it's hard to start out as a full-time science reporter, though, so I did uh, just general assignment news at a local TV station in Alaska, and then this little operation uh, called uh, Cable News Network was starting up, and everybody knew it would fail, so uh, they, there weren't many people applying for jobs there. They hired me to do some stories, and I stayed there for 17 years, eventually getting on to the uh, medical unit, and that's what got me onto the health beat, and I love it. Stayed here ever since. 
Very cool. Very cool. It's interesting that your your um, graduate work was in public health, which is yeah. Well, uh, I I realized the more I covered medicine, the more I realized that what people really want is to be and remain healthy, mm-hmm. and that doctors spend most of their time treating diseases, dealing with problems after you're already sick. They don't really do that much other than vaccinations and a few other wellness check things. Uh, Doctors and medicine don't really do a lot for your health. They just try to fix problems when you're already in trouble. Right. So that's why I thought, you know, I really want to study more about health and public health, especially as a journalist, and and my background is in broadcasting. I'm not talking to one individual at a time. When I'm writing or I'm on TV, I'm talking to a whole population. Well, that's what public health deals with, is is how do you deal with you know, cities and counties and entire nations. Uh, so uh, I, this was sort of uh, just for fun, uh, <laughs> although it was two years uh, part-time of uh, you know really hard work to, to yeah. get through this master's degree in public health, but it was it really with great in-depth research and helped me focus my interests uh, in health and in helping to tell people what's really important. So eventually you crossed into writing, not not just being on television talking about health, but writing about fictional TV shows that dealt with medicine. How did you make that transition? Well, actually, it just, uh, like so many things in life, it was kind of an accident. It just, an opportunity came to me because House was, uh, had had a really bang-up first season. Uh, it was a hit right out of the box. And mm-hmm. so there was my publisher, Penguin, uh, had a little niche of doing books about popular TV shows. Right. right. They saw this and thought, hey, we should do a house book. And so they were looking around for, for who uh, could do it, and uh, my name came up on their list. So we chatted about it, and I had no idea what it actually meant to write a book. So I said, sure, I'll do that. Sure, why not? <laughs> All right, Do- dove right in. You know, I'd done a few stories, uh, particularly at CNN, about popular TV shows and movies mm-hmm. and doing reality checks on them. So I, ha- I had a sense of of what they might be after, and- but they gave me a lot of freedom, said, you know, just watch the show and write about it, and that's what I did, and it, it seemed to work out pretty well. So you were, were you already a fan of the show when uh, you got contracted to work to do the book? I had not watched a lot of it. I had seen uh, bits and pieces, but like a lot of people who spend their real lives in health care, it can be sometimes hard to watch it, particularly fictional depictions, of healthcare sure. because you know, the shows have to take all sorts of liberties. I mean, if you yep. spend uh, you know an actual day in a hospital or a doctor's clinic, most of it's pretty tedious. Uh, you know, if you just gave a a really documentary telling of the day in the life of an average doctor, it would not get 20 million viewers. So they <laughs> have to take liberties. Uh, and so there were times, you know, I I wasn't always such a big fan of medical TV shows, but I got this assignment, started watching it, and I really came to love the show because it was just so well done, and of course, Hugh Laurie is 
is such a special actor that uh, I I was able to uh, forgive its transgressions against reality because it was such a good ride. Oh, yeah. You know, I was telling you, speaking of books, um, I was telling you uh, before we went on the air that uh, we both got mentioned in a forthcoming um, book about House. There's a new book coming out about House um, called, and it's in French only, it is not in English, and it is called uh, Dr. House L'Esprit du Shaman, um, which I think means the, Dr. House, the spirit of a healer. And it is about, he's a physician, Dr. Mark Zafrin, and um, he uh, it's about the ethics of the show and how the show approached medical ethics. So I started, he, he was kind enough to send me a PDF of the galleys, and I was kind of looking through it a little bit before, mostly for my name, but you know, and I came across your name. So um, we've both been quoted in this book. Um, but yours was one of the first books about the show that came out. I think it was, what, second season that it came out? It uh, came out, uh, let's see, I think at the uh, the beginning of the third season, because okay. it was... I got the assignment just as the second season was starting, so uh, I was able in that in that first book to include all of the first season and a good chunk of the second season mm-hmm. uh, uh, before it came out. And then the follow-up book, House MD versus Reality, picked up and went through the uh, sixth season. Right, right. And I want to actually talk about that book as well at some point because that's, to me, really interesting as well. Um, so... How do you think the medicine um, house stacked up against, say, other medical shows? I know you've written a book about Grey's Anatomy as well, and we'll talk about that a little bit as well. But um, how does the medicine of house stack up against the average medical show? It, it's generally really good. Uh, it is, you know, I put it up there with shows like ER, where the writers and producers really do pay attention, did pay attention to the details. If they talked about a drug, it's a real drug. Uh, I remember uh, uh, talking to one of the producers at House, and he uh, uh, gave me some little hints about, say, what time uh, I guess they were going to include the name of a drug that uh, from a company that advertised on the network. And they said, do you really have to use that, the real drug? And he said, yeah, that's part of the deal with the viewers. Is it's got to be the real drug, and what we say has got to be true it's got to be accurate um so they they do go to did go to great pains to make sure that it, you know real drugs real diseases real symptoms and then they you know, put the drama into it there was a sure. lot of uh you know collapsing of time things that in the real world would take uh days weeks months or even right. years would happen in uh hours or at most a couple of days on the show and right. They would take cases from the literature and take, uh, you know, half a dozen of the most bizarre, strange cases of a certain syndrome and lump it all into one person. Uh, So, you know, it was a distillation of of reality rather than the the full thing. Um, You know, and and so I, I didn't find any cases where you could really just say, you know, Although I, I suppose there are some you could quibble about and say, well, I don't think that's accurate. But they were really, really good with the details. And as you know from reading what I wrote, what my some of my main concerns were the the big picture, 
where mm-hmm. all of the details are there, but the overall impression you get about the power of medicine or how healthcare works or the relationship between healthcare and health, that's where people can sort of get some ideas that are a bit far from the mark, as I see it. Sure. sure. I mean, it's not usual, and in fact, uh, up until a few years ago, um, having a team like that of, of all these different kinds of doctors who would look at the patient as a whole and then have this one kind of outlier doctor who was just a, you know, he just looked at everything from every angle, um, just didn't exist. And what what I found kind of interesting was it was a few years into house. I think it was maybe fifth, I'm doing everything by season instead of by year because that's how my brain works with this show. Um, but the National Institutes of Health began a project. Of, it was, I think it was called the Institute of Rare and Undiagnosed Diseases, where, you know, it's sort of like life imitating art, but not really because I'm sure that they had the idea long before house came onto the scene. But where they would have, they would take 25 cases a year maximum, and they would have these all these doctors from all these different disciplines working one case that had not been diagnosed, that these people had been to doctor after doctor after doctor and had no cure. Um, And I thought that that was like, wow, that's kind of interesting because there was no specialty, there still is, no specialty of diagnostic medicine, yet here it is, maybe in its infancy, and maybe the show is on to something. That's right. That office does exist, and uh, they they are taking on some of those uh, strange outlier cases. Uh, and also, in in my research, and before even I'd, I'd done house, I had met physicians, researchers, specialists who, in their niche, were basically what house is on the show. Sure. Uh, you know, the person you go to when everyone else is stumped. Uh, I remember particularly right. there was a, a radiologist at Johns Hopkins I spoke with who, uh, I forget now exactly which syndrome he was talking about, but it, there's only a handful of cases a year in the entire country, and he sees them all. It's, it's like they stump everyone else. But he's seen so many of them that when he looks at a scan, he goes, oh, yeah, I know what that is. But mm-hmm. You know, he's really a, he's got an unusual experience, and can see those things in that niche. Right. And House, of course, is uh, supposed to be the uh, you know the conglomeration of all of those specialists in one human mm-hmm. being, which <laughs> would be uh, quite an astonishing feat if you could do it. Yes, indeed, and as brilliant as he is, and and of course, House was not only skilled in medicine, but he understood history and literature and philosophy, and spoke many languages. And right. uh, he was kind of this Renaissance man and uh, genius, um, which don't exist. And you know, it, and and of course, the idea that that people get is, well, you can get a doctor like this, um, but there aren't people necessarily. There there are people, and I know geniuses in medicine. I have personal friends who are, I would say, this guy is a genius in medicine, but who's not only going to be a genius, be able to put all these disparate parts together, but also be able to have such an understanding of everything else to be, to, to be able to, to cure someone who is incurable, who hasn't been able to, to get any kind of diagnosis. And um, they just really don't exist in one person. Um, but we have house. And, uh, you know, the other thing, too, is that the, the show occasionally paid, played fast and loose with, medical ethics as we know them and uh, house had his own sort of 
um, idiosyncratic sort of meta uh, ethical code. How did you? How do you think this show dealt with the ethics? He, oh boy, did he break a lot of rules and, and laws. But uh, you know, actually though, and, and this, I did have some conversations with people connected with the show as well as independent ethicists about it. And if you really look at most of the cases, when House breached ethics, he ended up being punished for it, or mm-hmm. something went wrong. So you can look at a lot of those ethical breaches and say, yeah, he did what we tell you is wrong, and look what happened. Uh, right. There was a bad outcome. Yeah, sometimes he makes a, a big win and gets the diagnosis or gets the cure he's seeking for, but quite often there was a lot of damage to the patient, uh, to the family, to others, to himself. Uh, mm-hmm. So he didn't get off scot-free. And uh, yeah. and, I, and I have talked to ethicists who, who will, in teaching medical students, use episodes from House and say, look, you know, here is a fictional depiction, but it illustrates some of the reasons why going, you know, that you, if you follow this temptation to cut corners, uh, there can be consequences. Mm-hmm. It was not only those cutting corners too, but when sometimes he would, and I, I like to use the example, well, a couple of good examples, um, but one was in the first season uh, episode control where he procured the heart for the transplant, the transplant heart for um, the bulimic young woman who is bulimic um, and she wouldn't have qualified for the transplant, yet he got her the transplant to save her life because she was his patient and he was going to be the strongest advocate and he lied to the uh, transplant committee to get that. On the other hand, what about the poor guy? And and he's like, wow, noble doctor, he's putting his career on the line and isn't that noble? And that was my initial instinct when I saw the episode. I was like, wow, that's pretty amazing. Um, On the other hand, what about the guy with the heart condition who died waiting for a transplant heart? Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And that that episode, and and really, I've had conversations with people who specialize in transplants, and and they do quibble with uh, the portrayal on House and many other shows about the ethics of transplantation and worry about how even well-meaning fictional depictions and can sometimes plant seeds of doubt uh, that that might have real consequences. I mean, there have been studies showing that when people believe that there are doctors out there who are cheating, who are going, you know, cutting corners or telling fibs uh, behind the scenes to get their patient the transplant, that erodes trust in the whole organ Mm -hmm. allocation system and can depress the willingness of people to sign up as organ donors. So that there are, you know, real world effects sure. in some of these fictional depictions. And I, I think in transplant is is one of those cases where um I, I think some of those shows you you could say did some harm. Hmm. In, yeah, interesting. And then on the other hand, um some you know, the vast majority of the patients and as Gabby in the chat room is saying, um a lot of times, in fact, most of the time when House would see a patient, that patient would have been to 10 or 15 doctors who respected all the rules of of medical ethics and coming to House is their Hail Mary pass. And by, by following the rules, 
that patient was going to die. But by breaching the rules, that patient was going to live. And that's, I think, where the, the show always asked really interesting questions about ethics. Did mm-hmm. House do the right thing by breaking those rules? They had, you know, this this uh, fund of uh, for legal expenses set aside every year because they knew he was going to get sued. Um, and, you know, is he right? Is he right to do that? I always think of the episode, I think it was in season two, and I can't remember the name of it, which tells you that I've been out of writing about the show for a little bit. Um where there was a young man who was a burn patient, and the question came up, House needed to find out um, a piece of information that only that young man had. He was like a 16-year-old kid, and he had third-degree burns, and he was in a, and was in a, a barbiturate coma to, to, while he was in such terrible pain, and he wanted to wake the kid up for like a second and the anesthesiologist who had administered, who was right by House's side, said, you can't do this. This is a breach of, me- you, can't, you can't do it. You're torturing this kid to wake him up um, to get this information. You just can't do it. And House says, well, I'm doing it. And if I don't do it, this kid's going to die, which is the better outcome. He didn't use those exact words. But that's a valid question. Yeah, and there are many cases where, there is no perfect answer where there are multiple bad paths to go and you have to choose the one that's least bad. Right. Uh, so, and, and that does happen in the real world. Uh, I mean, yeah. obviously any treatment is a balance of right. benefits and harms. Every time somebody goes into surgery, they're being harmed. They're being cut right. open. There, right. you know, There is pain. There is trauma. Uh, and so... In everyday medical practice, patients are being hurt mm-hmm. with the intent of, in the long run and overall, doing them more good than harm. Sure. Uh, so, you know, in that case, I think, uh, you know, clearly that we're like everything on house is extreme. But yeah. uh, I think you could make a good argument that there is an ethical case to be made if you can reasonably say waking the kid up and causing him uh, – transitory pain would increase his odds of survival and you can uh, you know you have somebody who is uh, now and the problem with house a lot of times is he didn't ask anybody uh you know True. in that case there should have been a parent or somebody else who is has nothing else except that person's interests in mind if if the individual is either you know is for some reason unable to participate in the decision uh to decide well which is uh, better or worse. And and those those uh, uh, dilemmas come up many times in the show where oh, patients yeah. have to decide between, uh, you know, harm or risk and uh, possible death or uh, disfigurement or something else. And, and, and I think, and there is some service in that saying, you know what, um, sometimes death is not the worst thing. There could be, you know, if, it, if there's an opportunity for it to have some great gain in health, uh, a risk of death may, may be reasonable, and there are other cases uh, where it's not reasonable. Uh, you know, people who are, um, you know, 
very old have or have multiple chronic conditions and you could go in and do some really invasive treatment to uh say give them an extra uh few months of survival because of cancer but you're going to cause them all sorts of pain right. and you know they're going to they're going to live 2 months instead of uh one month uh well you know <laughs> no it's time to just back off uh right. and there are, that actually happens more often where you can really do a lot of harm to somebody by trying to achieve cure, meanwhile pun- pummeling them with all sorts right. of invasive treatments. Right, and and that came up in the show quite often as well. Um, by the way, the episode I was with the burn victim is called Distractions. Thank you, Gabby, in the chat room. Um, <laughs> episode 210. Um, and Katie in the chat room also says Babies in Bathwater, which was a great Season 2 episode yes. as well. Um, where House, and, and this is something, you know, people would say about House, well, you know, he goes to the end and, and he doesn't ever respect a patient's wishes. But I think once he would be confident that the patient had all of the information and the avenues had been explored, he was willing to let go. And this, I think, is a good case for what you were just saying, is he ultimately said, you know what? We're gonna. You're dying anyway. You you've got all this terrible guilt. You've murdered your infant child. Um, I'm gonna respect your wish not to be treated. And he was willing to let it go. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, he gave a different argument. He says, "Well, I don't care anymore because it's you know the case is solved, but we know better." <laughs> yeah, uh, but I mean, he was, and you know, again. Exaggerating things. Every physician is a detective to some degree, right. and in-house, uh, that part of his personality really overwhelms a lot of the other things. He's not a balanced person. Uh, that show makes that clear over and over again. Uh, but uh, but you know each each facet of his character and personality and motivation does exist to some degree in every physician and every person. Uh, and the conflict between different motivations uh, comes out in the show, and that's that's part of what made it such a great show. Um, so I want to ask you some bests and worsts through the seasons. I'm going to test your knowledge. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, geez. Test you those I, I find when I write it. about something, I get very involved and, and obsessed with all the details and go through it. And then once I've written about it, it seems like, you know, taking a test, it all it all kind of flushes out right afterwards. So I am not the best. I'll, I'll just admit right up front, I'm not <laughs> the best house trivia expert. Well, you know what? It's funny because as much as I've written about the show, I wrote a book, I wrote a column every single week, if not more than once a week, about the show, all the way up till uh, it went off the air. Um, and I, my knowledge of trivia is totally trumped by the fans. I mean, and I'm a fan of the show, but by mm-hmm. by my readers, they are always besting me. So hey, That's what I've usually found when I talk to an audience, and they'll be asking me, well, and in season five, episode three, at, at you know thirty minutes in, this happened, and I can, you know, I don't know what happened. There. You know, I have I to can, go back and look. <laughs> I can do that for some of the episodes. There are particular episodes each season that I could just watch over and over again because they were, to me, so compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, <laughs> and I, I, my husband would tell you I am the biggest house nerd ever. And in fact, it was funny because we were surfing. Uh, surfing 
the cable stations and we came across a house episode and it was in the middle of the episode and we watched, it was like on for like a second because I was just surfing by it. And my husband said to me, oh, I know what episode that's from. And I said, really? He says, yeah. And, and in fact, he was not a, he was not a fan of the show, but by osmosis was forced to watch the show a lot of times and also listen to me read the book to him out loud when it was still in manuscript phase. Yeah. So, you know, he knows more trivia. That he actually knows more trivia than I do because he, he called me on a couple of mistakes in the book when, when I was writing, not after it was published. There are no mistakes. Yeah. Uh, no mistakes, right? No mistakes in your book either. Oh, well, yeah. No, I found one that had just had gotten passed by me. Uh, what is it? from? I think uh, season one is episode three about the kid with uh, the dormant measles. Um, yeah. And I think, let's see, he was a rug. No, he's a field hockey player. Yeah. And I think I said lacrosse in the book, and somehow I read it over and over and over again. The editor read it, and it slipped through. Uh oh. And the <laughs> yeah. lacrosse episode. There was a lacrosse episode, but it was in season one, where there was a lacrosse player. Um, well, you know, I, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I may even be mistaken about my mistake. But I know I I, I mixed up the sport, and I. And I don't know how because I looked at the video, I you know, over and yep. over again, and and yet I uh, I put the wrong sport down, and uh, I guess it was one of those things where, you know, for the for the moral of the story, it really wasn't critical, and right. so somehow my brain focusing on one part about why are we talking about this episode, what's the medical lesson, and mm-hmm. I just managed to uh, confuse myself about what my eyes had seen many, many oh, times. It is it is so possible to do that. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Um, so I want to kind of go through the seasons. Um, and, you know, I, they do blend into each other, so maybe I won't go through spe- specific seasons. But I do want to ask you um, what your probably – most favorite episode is from a medical point of view, but I want to ask from a couple of points of view. To you, what is it, One, maybe one or two or five episodes that really say to you, this is why the show was, was just a great show? Oh, boy. Uh, I mean, the, the one I always go back to was the pilot, the first mm-hmm. episode. I think you know they really did the job of setting the character and the parameters of the show for the early seasons uh, uh, with the, uh, the the tapeworm in the brain uh, that wasn't diagnosed uh, mm-hmm. because there were so many ways that that was good uh, because it really is the kind of condition that's rare in the U.S. Uh, and so it would be understandable that a lot of physicians would have missed it mm-hmm. and misdiagnosed mm-hmm. it and that the symptoms can be kind of vague and you know non-specific and could be related to a lot of things uh and it just showed his his brilliance and then also how he just kept pushing on beyond and and his motivations and what was what was it about the flaws in his personal character or the trauma in his past that mm-hmm. that made him fight so hard to to beat the disease uh, right. it really uh, you know, I'm sure that that's why they got picked up in the first place was because right. it's such a good script. Uh, that uh, that that one, if I you know, if I have to pick one, that's the one I always go to as saying, 
this is the series. This is the whole idea. And then everything after that is, uh, you know, wonderful explorations into more detail and certain aspects of that character. And then the the show, you know, changed over the years as it had to in order to survive. So uh, I'm, boy, trying to think of of particular episodes that stand out. I I remember when... um, uh, gosh, and I'm blanking on his name now. You're one of your your listeners will jump right in with it. The the character who committed suicide in part because the actor wanted to go do something else. Oh, but right. uh, no, right. uh, you know that that one. You know when the show had developed by that time in its in its life to being really involved with the lives of the characters, where there was a medical mystery, but it was mm-hmm. much more muted. Yeah. That wasn't the main point of the show. There was right. time and interest and attachment to the characters. That got into the the stresses of being a physician, of of this career, of this life and, and trying to achieve balance and how what kind of person goes into medicine with all of the demands, uh not only the the actual demands of being smart and having a good memory and being able to find things out for your patients, but also the the demands of being in a career where you're surrounded by very smart and aggressive and high-achieving personalities who sometimes aren't the best. So that I remember that episode and the ones around it uh, yes. really got to me as saying, yeah, this uh, – this is a, a real issue, and there again, you know, physician suicide is a real issue. It it yeah. does happen, and so by exploring that uh, and exploring the pain for those around, I, I think it it did a real service and 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 got to some underlying truth. And as I recall, the and and that of course that episode where where Cutner committed suicide, the wonderful yeah. Cal Penn who left the show to work in the Obama administration, actually, as I recall. Yeah. Um, but that was also the trigger for House's mental breakdown. And mm-hmm. um, I just thought that that whole, the, the traumas on everybody, but House, who's such an interior character in so many ways, um, an introspective, despite his, you know, kind of craziness, he's a really introspective character, keeps everything inside. And that trigger of, of somebody under him committing suicide without him ever having seen the signs just threw him over the cliff and um, I think just it was a a brilliant um, exploration not only of house but also the mental collapse of somebody and I know that they had partnered with some uh, with NAMI uh, the National Association of Mental Illness for that part of the season um, as a really interesting exploration of mental illness which there was no question. And we all kind of thought House was a little crazy, but, you know, not really mentally ill until uh, that season it really hit at home. But, yeah, that was such a pivotal episode. Um, you know, it's funny that you mentioned the, the pilot. I interviewed Katie Jacobs. Um, I interviewed Katie Jacobs um, in season five and asked her, um, what is your favorite episode to date? And she also said the pilot. Yeah. And Katie Jacobs is one of the uh, creators of the show. And then I actually talked to her get her again at the end of season seven. 
and asked her the same question. I said, Katie, I asked you in Season 5 what your favorite episode was. We have now gone through Season 5, Season 6, and Season 7, or almost all of Season 7, and she still picked the pilot. She said, mm-hmm. you know what? It still stacks up as, as really her favorite episode. Yeah, and it because it, it as I said it it's got everything, and the others are variations on a theme, and a lot of them really good. But that first one hit all the bullet points. Yep, it really did. Um, it was also you know it, it, the writing on that show was just so phenomenal, and as a writer, I really appreciated the tight writing on that show, and and how much they would be able to shove into. 45 minutes or 43 minutes of a script. Mm-hmm. Um, a storyline, B storyline, the, the the illness of the week, house's story, uh, whatever other overriding story, the cl- even the clinic beats. And I want to talk about the clinic beats. Do you have any particular favorite clinic beats? You know, I think one thing that d- does jump out of me is the, the doorknob question. Um, yeah. Where uh, gosh, I am so bad with names. Uh, <laughs> And I'm blanking on the character again, who was one of the originals. I can't tell. Chase. I think you're talking about Chase and the doorknob question. That's right, Chase, yeah. And, you know, he got into trouble about not not paying attention to something that a patient said on the way out the door. And and I had heard about that phenomenon before I saw that episode, and I thought that that was, you know, really great because it does happen. Um, And also it's something that every physician – worries about did i miss something did i overlook something uh i remember uh, when i was doing the gray's anatomy book talking to a surgeon about you know how he uh if the if his phone rings in the middle of the night you know most people think oh who you know who in my family has died the surgeon either he always wakes up thinking did, what did i miss you know that that just right. that constant concern about that so for chase to be confronted with that where there are bad consequences Mm -hmm. for not paying attention to a little detail, a little comment that was made as the patient went out the door Uh, is something that, you know, does happen and is a real concern. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I thought that that was nicely done uh, uh, and the the way it could be good drama and highlight uh, a real world issue was was something the show did well. And it also, that particular episode, I think, also um, highlighted the stresses that doctors are sometimes under. You know, the, he, he had just learned that his father was dead. Yes. Yeah, and, and again, that's that's so human. Uh, yep. And people sometimes forget that physicians are human. Uh, and they, they do, you know, miss things. They are distracted. Uh, and, you know, so that that happens. Now, one thing is in the in the show... Um, and I think in a lot of life, a lot of people, uh, you know, blame the the person for for missing it. And how certainly, you know, it was, it was no one to excuse human error. Uh, it was an error. It's inexcusable. And, you know, you just got to do better. Whereas in the real world and in real health care, a lot of the advances in safety and, and good outcomes has come from understanding that, you know, Everybody's human. Everybody right. is going to miss things and is going to make mistakes. So you've got to build all these safety nets in and all these cross checks so right. that one mistake is never going to cause a problem. That you you have to understand that that, that you've got to be ready for three, four, five, six mm-hmm. 
mistakes to happen and still and catch them all some way before they lead to a bad outcome. I mean, that, right. least that's your objective. Right. You know, I, I did a project for a, in my other life, and part of my other life, a project for a healthcare systems design company and um, a writing project. And, you know, it was like a patient, patient X suffered from this and this because the janitorial closet was locked from hours this to this, and they couldn't get this particular thing, and the nurses had to go here. And it was like everything was was because there were paper towels that were locked up. Yes. It was like, whoa. And it's amazing how intertwined it is. And then putting in systems where there are checks to make sure that this happens and this happens and this happens makes everything work together in the real healthcare system. And uh, But one small mistake by somebody that's not even a practitioner can affect a patient. And uh, it was was quite an education to do that. So um, I want to ask you, gosh, we're in the last 20 minutes of the show. It's like, oh, my gosh, there's so much to talk about. There is. Um, And I want to leave time to talk about your other books as well. Um, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about, well, first let me ask you, um, the most egregious, terrible, horrible medicine in the show. Can you kind of give me a couple of your of your oh, the worst you know. medicine in the show. Uh, oh boy, that 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 is it's a hard a, question. Sorry. Yeah, it is. I mean, I thought you were, you know, as far as the worst. Actually, one thing that I'll, I'll come back to that. I'll leave part of okay. my brain time to think. I think one of the worst things that House did, and this was an ethical thing, was in the case where he suspected child abuse. Um, yeah. That would have been, I think, in the second season. Uh, and he didn't report it because it it would have interfered with him achieving mm-hmm. his goal of solving the mystery. Mm-hmm. Uh, that to me was really awful uh, because he was putting himself and his interests ahead of those of a child, um, and that uh, so that I think was one of the most egregious uh, ethical lapses, and it was a legal lapse. I I talked to. Yeah regulators in New Jersey who said, no, it, what's depicted in that show technically in New Jersey is a crime for somebody mm-hmm. who's a physician who has responsibility over somebody not to not to report suspected child abuse. Uh, uh, that's, uh, you know, putting his interests above those of a vulnerable child was just inexcusable, even if it helped him get the answer in the end. So that, you know, it's not strictly a medical thing. It's, sure. Uh, uh, an ethical and, and legal lapse. Um, so I, you know, I don't know. There, there are certainly cases where, well, maybe it was baby in bathwater. Where was it? That where they were talking about cancer and whether or not to treat a woman with breast cancer uh, in order to save the, or whether she should get treatment in order to to save the pregnancy. Uh, oh, fetal position. Oh, fetal right. Position. That, okay. Fetal position. That was fourth season. Um, was that fourth? Third season. Sorry, third okay. season. Uh, yeah, that was an. And that that one, I I really I disliked because I have done in the years I, that subject has come up many times about pregnant women who mm-hmm. are diagnosed with breast cancer or other types of cancer, but particular. I think in that episode it was breast cancer, and that does happen. Uh, and the question about whether or not you should abort the fetus in order to treat the woman. Uh, and 
everyone I talked to said, you know, I can't think of a single case where that was necessary. And so they built this whole episode around this conundrum, which in the real world, uh, you know, maybe it's happened. And there again, houses, one in a million is not nearly rare enough for house. Uh, But it, it did give this impression that a woman diagnosed with breast cancer during pregnancy has to choose between the fetus and saving your life. And that really doesn't happen, in part because breast cancer tends to grow slowly. There's mm-hmm. usually you can wait or you can do kinds of treatments. You can do, do a lot of treatments for the breast cancer uh, that don't bother the fetus. The fetus can just, you know, chug along because either the drugs don't get into the, mm-hmm. the blood supply for the fetus or certainly there's surgery or, you know, pinpoint radiation or other things they can do and protect the fetus, and it's just not an issue. Uh, and, and so that, that one did bother me. Okay. That's interesting because I hadn't, con- I hadn't considered that, um, with that episode. A lot of, a lot of viewers didn't like that episode. Um, I kind of liked it for different reasons other than the medicine, but, um, that's interesting. Um, I want to talk about, and we, we touched a little bit before on, uh, the shortcuts that were taken and the fact that doctors were doing things that, you know, technicians would do or right. nurses would do um, as a as a dramatic device um, because how boring would it be for having 45 minutes of the episode standing in front of the whiteboard? Yes. Um, did that bother you too? I, I know it bothered a lot of practitioners that I would talk to. It's like, well, especially nurses. I have friends who are, are very politically involved in nursing and you know they just never doctors would never do that stuff and and it really bugs me about the show and I was like well what would they do you know how do you you know as a a tv producer as a showrunner how do you overcome that yeah no that is it is a tough one because uh, and I I really understand the position particularly of nurses and I wrote about that in the books, I've written magazine articles focusing on that on that issue of, of nurses not getting their credit because m- almost all of what's shown in almost all medical shows is nursing, not <laughs> physician work. Uh, so, uh, so they really do get short shrift uh, on television quite a bit, and that is a real problem. There are consequences uh, for that because uh, um, you know. It, in terms of simply things like uh, recruitment of, of people to go into careers where they don't mm-hmm. understand what nursing is because they don't understand that what they've been watching on those TV shows they love is more nursing than physician work. Um, on the other hand, you're right. You've got to collapse things down into a very small number of characters because if you tried to show all the different people who just pop in and out of a patient's care in a hospital, you'd never be able to keep track of it. Uh, right. You know, it might be dozens of people. So the, you you have to condense it into a few characters. Uh, right. I think the the real the solution uh, would be to have things like have <laughs> nurses as part of the team. Why does everybody on the team have to be an MD? Right. Uh, Good point. There are nurses who know a lot more about patient care than physicians do. Physicians are trained to diagnose and treat diseases. They learn a lot about how organ systems work, a lot about biochemistry. Nurses go to school to learn about nursing care, where they understand 
better than a lot of physicians, what happens to people in the hospital and you know what are the signs when when is what's okay and when is there a problem uh and reading and communicating reading the signs and symptoms of a patient uh so you know they could have had somebody on the team who was a senior nurse uh and who really had that that patient perspective patient care perspective uh, because they did those things, but everybody who was doing it was an MD. Um, and then there, the other thing is to just do more shows about nurses. Uh, there True. used to be shows about nurses. There mm-hmm. used to be nurses who, who were main characters. My my theory is that really is that uh, uh, the progress in equality between men and women is part of the problem uh, as far as the dramatic presentation of, of health care. Because mm-hmm. back when uh, when I was a kid, uh, all the men, all the doctors were men, right. and all the nurses were women. And right. if you wanted romantic entanglements in your show, you had to have doctors and nurses. Right. <laughs> so, if, it's like, if you wanted to have heterosexual entanglements. Uh, <laughs> and these days, because so many physicians are women, you know, medical schools are about evenly split, maybe even trending towards majority female, uh, you can have all physicians and equal numbers of men and women. So the the writers didn't need to put a nurse into the into the show in order to get those uh, those uh, boy girl stories, and so they just wrote out the nurses, which I think was right. the you know that's I, I put the blame on Hollywood for that for not being a little more creative and saying no. To tell this story, you can still get nurses in and do a do a great job uh, and tell a great story because. True. Uh, Nurses are the ones who are dealing with patients. I mean, if, if you go back, people watch the show, and they say, oh, yeah, those great doctors and all that. They say, well, have you ever been in a hospital? And you talk to anybody who's actually been in a hospital. You know, who do you remember? Who took care of you? Oh, yeah. the nurses. You know, they're the, right. they're the ones who actually do it. So uh, so you got to uh, – I think that's kind of a, a little bit of, uh, you know, laziness and lack of imagination on the part of Hollywood writers. You know, it's interesting. Back in the 60s, there was a TV show called The Nurses. And I, it's funny because I was mm-hmm. just talking about this last night on my other show um, with a television historian. And um, there was a show called The Nurses. And after the first season, it was changed to The Doctors because – the AMA objected to a show that showed nurses as the heroes. Now, yeah. this was back in 1962 or something like that. But yeah. No, I've written about that series, too, and, and, and uh, had the, the joy of, of interviewing one of the uh, the actresses who was a main character on that series that many decades ago about uh, about how they did it, you know, a great show that really did focus on nurses and you know, to show it it was possible. Yes, absolutely. Um, I want to cross over to talk in our last few minutes before I ask you to tell me tell us about your other books and especially your Grey's Anatomy book and what else you've got going on. But I want to talk for a couple of minutes about House's pain and drug issue. Um, yes. That's really something that's obviously a doctor who's got as big a drug problem and an overtly, you know, overt drug problem would never be practicing medicine so out there. I know that doctors take drugs. They self-prescribe. It's a problem in medicine. Mm-hmm. It um, is. How do you, aside from the kind of overt nature, and, and it wouldn't exist that overtly, um, how do you think the show handled that, that issue, houses pain and the drugs and, the, and, and that end of it? 
Well, uh, they took their time dealing with it. I, I think, you know, ultimately they did the right thing by showing that, you know, he ended up being institutionalized. He had all sorts of problems. His life was a mess. Uh, and so that his drug use caught up with him. Uh, and I think actually if you look at it in its totality, they did a good job mm-hmm. of displaying some of the reality. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, there still are too many physicians who go on too long with uh, substance abuse problems because, um, you know, every, there, nobody gets through medical school by being an idiot. Uh, they're all pretty smart, and they're good yes. at covering. And so uh, everything that I've read and everyone I've talked to who's an expert in this field says substance abuse problems aren't really any more prevalent among physicians or nurses, other healthcare professionals than in the average population. But there are a couple of things going on. A, they have access to these substances so they can get into deeper trouble quicker than uh, the average person without a a prescribing license. Um, And B, they tend to be really smart so they're better at covering, so they can continue continue functioning longer uh, and get away with it longer than uh, a person who's who's not as quick to cover their flaws and their errors. So it's it's a real issue, and I think the medical profession in the decades I've been reporting on it has made progress in dealing with impaired physicians. Uh, but it's uh, it is an ongoing problem, and I think how it started out the first few seasons where he's getting away with it, his coworkers were enabling him and covering for him and protecting him. But in the end, it caught up with them. And I think if you look at in that light, they actually did capture some of what happens in the real world uh, because that does happen where particularly somebody who's a, you're really good at what they do and seen as valuable, or B, you know, really nice, which House wasn't, um, <laughs> that their coworkers would try to cover for them for a while. And it's been a process of educating people in the profession to say, you're not doing anybody any favors, not, you know, certainly not the patients, and not even the physician or nurse who's impaired. You're not doing them a favor by covering for it. You need to, you know, call them on it and get them into a diversion program. And there are more of these, uh, you know, non-criminal programs you know, where somebody can take a little vacation, go get worked on, right. and, and get back and get their career. But, but but the other dimension to that, and my people in my chat room are saying what I was going to say, um, you have the dimension of that, that House is a legitimate pain patient. And... Um, there's a there's a, a tension between treating House for his pain and the Vicodin. When he went off, when he had like the ketamine treatment and he was actually pain free for months at the beginning of the third season, he didn't use Vicodin. When yeah. he found alternatives, he didn't use Vicodin. Uh, right. When he was pain free, um, so it could be argued that he had a pseudo addiction. Um, and was if his tra- if his pain had been properly treated by whatever whether that's whatever means whatever drug or whatever other things that the Vicodin addiction would disappear. Hmm. So yeah. no, I know, think that I think you, yeah no you can make an argument for that and certainly 
all the pain specialists I talked to said, why the heck is he on Vicodin? I would never give somebody, I would never treat somebody with his condition with Vicodin. Right. Uh, it's, it's, because it's, it's, Vicodin is extremely mild, it's, as addictive as it is. It's a very, it's a reasonably mild painkiller for yeah. what he's got. Treat him with something stronger that he doesn't have to pop every two hours. Right. And that um, has a lower addiction potential in, right. in chronic pain patients. Yeah. Right. There's right. there's a lot of, you know, and that's, you know, that's something that there is this tension in uh, just in general society as well as in the medical right. community about pain management. Um and just in my in my career, I've seen it swing back and forth, where there was you know, certainly you know, too little, too much fear of appropriately treating pain, uh, leaving patients to suffer unnecessarily. Uh, and then now we're dealing with uh, a huge number of deaths related to prescription drugs, in part from people stealing prescriptions, uh, but also uh, you know not you know. Rather, whether it's lack of skill or monitoring or whatever, that the uh, uh, giving people too much medicine in the end, uh, leading to overdoses, mm-hmm. uh, that there's a you know kind of a problem on the other side of, of being too too loose with some pain medications in some cases. Right. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's a tough thing because you it, it it really does call for very nuanced specialized care to make sure that these powerful drugs. Uh, achieve the most benefit at the right, least harm right. to people, to patients and society. Right, and I thought that was a really interesting aspect of the show. In the time left, um, <laughs> let's talk about, gosh, I can't believe this hour has gone by so quickly. Um, tell me about your other book. You did a book uh, a few years after your first one where you looked at a medical, you looked at the medical cases in the show and you actually tallied up the cost. Yes, yeah, that was kind of a fun one, and and in part that came I'd I'd been toying with the idea in the second book in House MD versus Reality of of going into more depth about the the price tag because I was writing that in the midst of the congressional debate over what became Obamacare, yeah, uh, and everybody was talking about the cost of health care, uh, so I was I was looking at that, and then actually the reason I re- kind of fleshed that out. Uh, to a chapter was I, I a producer at NPR got in touch with me and said that uh, uh, um, one of their uh, Robert Siegel, one of the, the ho- All Things Considered hosts, had been right. t- watching the congressional debate and then went home and watched House and was wondering, I wonder how much all this costs. So they called me up to ask, and uh, so I did a little spot on on All Things Considered about it and went on to write a whole chapter. Uh, based on that uh, episode, just saying, well, how much does it cost? It was kind of hard to to figure out because, like, cost in healthcare is really difficult. Uh, it's not transparent. There are no price tags that you can look at on things, but uh, it adds up uh, very quickly. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it would. Anyone who's ever stayed in the hospital knows that. Yeah, <laughs> for and something the prices, mild. The prices are all they're they're a fantasy. You know, you talk about fiction. Um, a hospital bill is a fiction. There is almost no real connection between the health care provided and the bill. It is, I mean, certainly the more you get, the higher the bill goes. But everything is negotiated. And, and really, uh, the way I look at prices on hospital bills is that the management of the hospital knows what they spend in a year. You know, they're going to go through X gazillion dollars. 
And then they have to divide that up and assign a certain percentage of the cost to each patient that comes in. So it's not necessarily what was done, you know, that that aspirin costs $3, but, you know, that aspirin re- represents point zero 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 whatever percent of the sure. hospital's budget, and so it gets tacked onto that. Uh, and then the insurance companies get in the way, uh, and they negotiate, and so the two patients right next to each other uh, are probably end up getting radically different bills because uh, there's this contract negotiation where the insurance company and the hospital decide, well, this is what we think a heart catheterization is going to get billed mm-hmm. at. Well, great. This was really interesting, and we're out of time. Wow. <laughs> well, I'm happy to come back sometime. There's certainly, you know, I've been talking about this stuff for decades. And, uh, Me too. <laughs> fun stuff. It's fun stuff. It is good stuff. It is good stuff. I'm a science geek. I have a biochem background and a microbiology background and worked in public health for three years. And uh, so this is this is a real fascination of mine. So thank you so much, Andrew. And tell people where they can get your books, including the Gray's Anatomy book on how surgeons are trained. And um, tell people where they can get your books. Yeah, the mm-hmm. the best the central location is my website holtzreport.com. So H O L T Z R E P O R T dot com, or do a Google search for Andrew Holtz, and you'll get me and a musician in New Jersey. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, not the same person. No, no. Okay, well, great. Thank you, Andrew, and I would love to have you back on the show. It'd okay, well, thank you very much for the invitation, Barbara, and uh, good good luck in your career. Thank you as well to you. All right. And you've been listening to Let's Talk TV Live. Thank you, Andrew Holtz. And I will see you all next Monday where we will be talking about Once Upon a Time. Take care and good night.